Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a group of friends get to talk about movies. I'm here with Dave and Connor, and we are rolling right through our theme of movies that we dragged our parents to see, and that's been quite a roller coaster so far. Before we continue that theme, though, want to just check in with the crew, uh, see how folks are doing. Want to know if anyone's seen anything recently of note or things that they just want to uh, trash? Maybe maybe people have seen some trash. What do you What have you guys been up to lately? What have you seen? I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast yet, but my friends and I are slowly making our way through Love Island season seven. Um, it's been uh, just something to when we can't agree on something to watch, just something to put on that's pretty easy. Overly bloated, but. It's like, oh, if only I know that it's like a show that runs every day for like two months or three months or something. And so they just got to fill it for commercials and whatnot. But there's some interesting things there. If it were to, instead of like 50 minutes, it was like 20 minutes an episode just to extract the, the drama of the island. It's Love, so, island a, it's Love Island a British show? I think it was originally a British show, but there's versions in, I think, like many, many countries now. Like there's an American version. Uh, all sorts of <clears throat> different regions. And is this a Netflix product? No, it's like ITV or something. Okay. This is, I think they're on like season 11 or 12 now. So this has been a long running British series. Nice. But apparently our friend said season seven is one of the, the juiciest. So I think we're 25 episodes in. I feel like when you embark on a journey, especially a reality TV journey and one that has many seasons, you need like a, a guide, you know, like a seasoned watcher who's like, just make it through the first six seasons. And then once you <laughs> get to the seventh, things start really ramping up. That's how I embarked on the Love is Blind journey <laughs> and ended up watching Love is Blind Japan. And I definitely, my friend is a really well-informed Love is Blind devotee and she was like just just keep watching <laughs> and I was like okay okay did you watch the ultimatum no uh, I don't know if I mentioned this but I also want we watched that as well as a friend group Nick Lachey and Vanessa Lachey's other Netflix show uh, that's wild those people were not emotionally prepared for an, a, a non-monogamy experiment there is just <laughs> so much yeah just so much there that could be a butter with that spinoff Honestly, we should just dive deep into the love reality shows. Um, well, cool. Dave, what have you been watching? Any any reality TV? No, oh, God, give me strength. Yeah, I don't know if that I uh, have the, the wherewithal for that idea, but uh, an interesting concept. Uh, instead, though, I've been testing my wherewithal with a different series that, uh, as you know, I'm a fan of the Stalked by My Doctor franchise from the Johnson Group. Uh, that's starring Eric Roberts as Dr. Beck, the titular doctor who is stalking various patients who are always young women. Um, this most recent installment came out last year, and that was uh, rather than stalked by my doctor and then a colon and a subtitle. Uh, this one is Just What the Doctor Ordered. 
which I watched. It starts as a bit of a hider in the house scenario where Eric Roberts, having just escaped from the uh, quote unquote asylum he was housed in at the end of the fourth movie uh, after it caught fire, um, the house is moved into by a mom and her daughter. And uh, suffice it to say, in uh, Dr. Beck fashion, he rescues her from a medical emergency and then falls in love with her and this has to have her. And it's very weird. I'd say it's the worst one in the franchise. Uh, it's kind of gone downhill since the third one, which is actually good. But they're Lifetime movies that are uh, pretty off the rails, or Lifetime adjacent movies. So uh, go into that knowing that. I also rewatched The Batman uh, now that it's on HBO, which I enjoyed. Christine, I understand you uh, started it, but didn't quite make it. Have you finished it since? I have. So for some context, I started it maybe Friday and I fell asleep at an hour and 53 minutes, (laughs) which is an indication that my body was clearly like, oh, it's reaching about the two hour benchmark. My body was recognizing that no movie has any business being way over two hours. So it was like (laughs) slowly shutting down anyways. And so I fell asleep. And then I since have finished it. And overall, I thought it was an enjoyable experience. I don't think I was as blown away by it as I was thinking I would be. Really loved the detective elements of it. But a lot of the twists, the narrative twists, didn't feel like as earned as I thought they would be. But I really enjoyed Rob Pat's performance. Loved Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman. Uh, Jeffrey Wright, like cast was great, but I don't think it like completely blew me away. It's interesting, Christine, that you mentioned that with every rewatch, it feels as though the the framework of the, without spoiling anything, I suppose, corruption narrative in, in a movie that is three hours long does feel pretty rushed element to element. It doesn't really feel like it gives each of those things that much room to breathe, which is, I guess, a bit of a problem. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of characters and moving pieces, and I feel like a very tightly written procedural or detective narrative is going to not only weave those in a compelling way, but when something is revealed, a well-written plot will make the viewer feel like this was an imp- like a really significant revelation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I knew I was supposed to recognize that these were significant revelations, but it didn't feel as like meaty as I was really hoping it would. Now, maybe upon rewatch, and once again, I was tired this week. I was busy. So maybe my head was not in the headspace to really let it all in, but it looked great. It was broody as fuck, which made me kind of laugh. Like I kind of like laughed at a lot of moments where like there was one moment where Bruce Wayne is looking over Alfred's shoulder or somebody else's, maybe Jeffrey Wright's shoulder. I don't know. And they're like reading some some important text. And then Robert Patton just goes, that's interesting. And he puts his sunglasses on. <laughs> it's just emo as fuck. I cannot get over it. But yeah, it was a it was a fun watch. I also get a laugh every time out of Jeffrey Rice's delivery of the line when they're uh, with the penguin. Open your eyes. <laughs> oh man. But mm. I'm curious to give it a rewatch because I feel like I've heard from a lot of people um, and I was talking to Sam about this, that um, like, I feel like a lot of people are, the more they watch it, the less they like it. So I'm curious to um, give it a rewatch, but I think Reeves and company laid a really cool foundation. And so the movie made a lot of money. So I'm curious 
to see what future sequels in this version of Gotham look like because I think there's a lot of really cool potential there with this Batman. Yeah, Definitely. Same. And I will happily continue to watch more Rob Pat, the Batman. Oh my God. I just got to emphasize the, uh, well, and we, we got a lot of Robert Pattinson chat in last week when we talked about Twilight, which was a wonderful, wonderful ride. And to round out our theme of movies we dragged our parents to, we will be talking this week about 1995's epic flop, belly flop, water flop. Water um, flop. <laughs> 1995's Waterworld, starring Kevin Costner, Dennis Hopper, Gene Triplehorn, and Tina Majorino, directed by Kevin Reynolds. So I chose this movie because I was not actually the one who dragged my mother to see this movie. It was, in fact, my brother's idea. But I thought in the spirit of movies children drag their parents to, that this would be an interesting choice. And I actually talked to my mom about this experience, and she had a very wonderful memory of taking us And she provides some really wonderful insight into her experience and then her reassessment of the movie from today's lens. So here's what Dottie Rayburn had to say about Waterworld. So the year was 1995. John King was 11. Tina was six or seven. Both both my children were really water babies. They love the water. They love the swimming pool. They love the ocean. They love the river. So what they knew about Waterworld, the movie, at ages 11 and 6, I really don't know. But John King was insistent that we go see this movie. Now, maybe he thought it was about a (laughs) water park Uh, maybe there was a connection to Mad Max, which I knew nothing about at the time. But anyway, he he was insisting we go see this movie. I wonder if John had seen Mad Max. Probably, right? And then this sort of had a Mad Max vibe. Instead of Mel Gibson, you've got Kevin Costner. Interesting. That's a really interesting connection. It could be because, and I was probably clueless. I didn't know. I I did have the sense though that this was not a movie for young kids. So I was a little concerned about Tina at the tender age of six or seven going to this action movie. But but anyway, off we went to Waterworld. I, I can just remember even the seats we sat in as the movie progressed. I was increasingly bored. Now, it's one thing to watch Kevin Costner spend hours in his hut or... Oh, you're talking about Dancing with Wolves. Dancing with Wolves. That was actually interesting. But Kevin Costner for hours alone on a raft with, with his failing tomato plant, that is just plain boring. So to me, the movie was boring. I couldn't get into the character or characters the kids kept taking frequent breaks to go to the concession stands or the bathroom and staying away for longer and longer periods of time which actually I was happy about because it meant Christine wasn't watching this kind of scary 
stuff on the screen. And eventually, so so they were like back and forth to the seats, spending lots of time out of the seats. And eventually, John said, let's go. I was like, great. And I credited him with having such sensitivity to realize his young sister should not be exposed to this horrible movie. In reality, he was probably just as bored as I was. But anyway, we didn't, I don't think we stayed for the whole the whole movie. So he called um, it quits on the movie. I, I, you know, I don't remember exactly at what stage, but I do think now that I've done a little bit of research preparing for this discussion, I read that it's actually maybe, a, so it was known as what Kevin Gate or I don't know, water flop or whatever. It, it was not a box office hit. I love water flop. (laughs) Water flop. But I read that it may be a film worth revisiting. At the time, one of the things that distinguished it, which also made it a very difficult film to make that should have been made in, you know, 90 days and took 157 days, was because Costner insisted on shooting an open water. And they were warned by Steven Spielberg, who had done Jaws, bad, bad idea, but they insisted. So not only did the the atoll they had built get blown away in a hurricane, the two females, the the woman and the the child, girl child actress almost drowned when the bolt of the boat broke off. Kevin Costner himself was almost lost at sea when his rat when he was lashed to the mast and something the waves pulled the craft out to to sea so it was full of disaster but certain critics say the fact that it was really filmed on open water live or whatever the term is and and didn't rely on cgi actually makes it distinguished and perhaps worth reviewing. And I read that there is now a three-hour version called Ulysses, Waterworld Ulysses Uncut. So for our next family gathering, mandatory viewing will be Waterworld Ulysses Uncut. That is, yes, I think we should all get together and revisit this movie. (laughs) Yeah, Dennis Hopper, scary, had that patch, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, really scary. Okay, and since the polar ice cap is actually melting, I think this movie has more relevance than ever. As much as I love tomatoes and growing things, that just was not enough to sustain me for the whole movie. Thank you for this opportunity to dialogue and reminisce. Oh, thank you, mother. And what a... I don't even know how to reintroduce this. What a, what a wonderful review. I mean, uh, God bless you, Dottie, for doing podcast homework for us. There's plenty of stuff that we uh, we have in our notes that uh, you very well covered. And it was just a pleasure to hear about uh, yeah, revisiting the memories of yourself being dragged to this movie. <laughs> It, yeah, I uh, it was so interesting because I remember being in the bathroom the whole time 
and being really scared by Dennis Hopper's eye patch. <laughs> and so, and as my mom recalled, yeah, we were getting up, going to concessions, going to the bathroom, but I did not remember that my, that my brother finally was like, let's leave. <laughs> so we <laughs> left the theater. So this is, a, this theme is a wonderful uh, opportunity to rewatch this movie and uh, reassess it from a modern lens. I actually have now watched Waterworld twice in the past year. Waterworld, my first rewatch was just a mid-pandemic, like, fuck it, let's watch Waterworld. And I was intrigued, paired with my mom being like, oh, it'd be really funny if you talked about Waterworld. And that's why I chose it for this month's theme. Uh, Has anyone seen Waterworld before? Or was this a first-time watch for Dave or Connor? This is my first and hopefully last time. (laughs) watching Waterworld. I bet I've caught, you know, like we talked about with Independence Day. I feel like this was a movie that was also in the TNT, TBS kind of rotation on cable. So I feel like I've caught glimpses of this, or that could just be thinking of Dances with Wolves. That's also a possibility um, in my young mind. But this is my first time sitting down to watch Waterworld. And God bless you, Christine, for watching this movie twice. And if your family does end up watching it again as a family reunion and the horribly titled um, Ulysses uncut version. <laughs> uh, God bless. And please, please report back if that does ever happen. I'll have the whole family on the pod. And we'll, we'll do around the horn everyone's reactions to Just a Rayburn a commentary. Family watch. Yeah. Uh, I'd seen this movie before a long time ago. Um, didn't care for it then. I don't much care for it now. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to talk about. So to fill folks in who have not seen Waterworld or don't know what it's about, uh, Waterworld is a, it's essentially a post-apocalyptic vision of the world submerged underwater after the polar ice caps melt. And it follows a character whose only name is Mariner, who is half human, half fish, played by Kevin Costner. (laughs) Well, maybe like... He's like, Did you say half fish? I know, I know, I know. Okay, he's, he's like maybe like a. It's 12. on the father's side. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's okay. I will uh, clarify. He's got gills and fins for hands and feet. Uh, he and has evolved into them, right? Sw- yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Even though this is, I think, five hundred years into the future, hey. and human evolution has taken a pretty swift turn. <laughs> he got that special gene uh, that allowed him to swim super fast, which I think is a pretty cool, uh, like, power. And he and fellow water travelers, Helen, who's played by Jean Triplehorn, and Enola, who's played by Tina Majorino, um, who's a little girl that he meets on this atoll. They're all traveling on his boat together as they try to find dry land, which is this mythic utopia of, you guessed it, dry land, while they are also trying to evade capture uh, uh, by this character named Deacon, played by Dennis Hopper, who is the leader of a gas-guzzling gang called the Smokers. And that's the plot. There's not too much else to it. And um, little pr- some production notes before we dive deep into discussion. <laughs> this movie is known for being an epic blockbuster flop. It uh, was made on a 
bloated budget of $175 million, originally authorized as a $100 million budget. And in 1995 was the most expensive movie ever made until Titanic later blew that uh, record. And it went on to make, I think, more than $175 million. I think it did well abroad or something, but it was panned by critics. Audiences didn't want to go see it. And it had just this production backstory that basically clouded the entire rollout of this movie. The movie was plagued with sets destroyed by hurricanes, with fractious relationship between Kevin Costner and Kevin Reynolds, who directed it. Interestingly enough, Reynolds had already directed Kevin Costner in Robin Hood uh, about three years earlier. I think that movie came out in 1992. And it was, from what I've read, reluctant to return to working with Costner because of the experience. It It sounds as if Kevin Costner was a very hard star to work with. Not only was the production cost super bloated, but apparently Kevin Costner insisted on staying at this super swanky hotel in Hawaii while the rest <laughs> of the crew were just like bunking in these little dingy, uh, dingy apartments. Kevin Costner insisted in post-production that his hairline be changed to not reveal his receding hairline. <laughs> that is what it means to work with Kevin Costner. Uh, it's all about Kevin. I think that's why I, I so often confuse this movie for, with Dances with Wolves, not in any meaningful way, but in terms of like it being a Costner like vanity project. I'm always forgetting he didn't direct this. But then you get details like that. It's just like, well, now it all makes sense. Yep. It's it's Kevin World. You think it's <laughs> Waterworld, but it's Kevin World. Yeah, so sets were destroyed. The cast were constantly put in danger. Reynolds and Costner wanted to film this on open water. And we have on this podcast have talked about the problems with filming on open water when we talked about Spielberg and Jaws. And Spielberg, in fact, warned Costner not that basically, maybe he didn't warn him, warn him not to film, but he definitely warned him that it would be a huge challenge to film on open water. And so, yeah, this movie was known as being a through and through disaster. Originally, uh, a water flop, a water flop. And it is interesting. Well, we can get into some other things, but I guess as we discuss what we think of this movie, I would have a general question. And that is, do you think that this movie in any realm of the imagination deserves a reappraisal? Or is there anything that from today's sort of assessment is this movie worth talking about? I guess is my general question. Like, is there anything intriguing to latch onto when we talk about this movie? It's no secret that I love, you know, box office data. I feel like I talk about it almost every movie. And that's one angle that I think makes Waterworld super interesting is like a precursor to Titanic in that way of like Hollywood in the nineties, trying to go big, these big epic dramas, set pieces, I guess Waterworld's, you know, drama action movies trying to like, I think have both of those, which Titanic also way more successfully <coughs> handles action and drama. Um, I think Titanic is an absolutely phenomenal action movie um, when viewed from the lens of James Cameron's set direction, etc. cetera. Um, so I think Waterworld is really a movie that would not exist today in like any way, shape or form. So it's kind of like a really interesting timepiece of 
this huge, you know, Kevin Costner in his prime filming on open water, this, you know, environmentalist kind of message. Um, this movie, if made today, would look very different. Well, environmentalist, quote unquote. And so I think it's interesting from a historical standpoint. And I think that there were some really cool, like the open filming on open water is incredibly impressive. And uh, we definitely, as Percy, as you mentioned, talked about it in Jaws. So kudos to like putting it together. But man, at what cost for the quality of the movie and the cost of the folks who were making it and filming it? So it's like cautionary tale meets like historic kind of moment, historical moment. So I think it is, I don't know if like reappraisal is the right word, but it's definitely worth keeping within the film canon of late 20th century cinema. I like that way you describe it, an interesting timepiece that definitely, you know, connects to sort of mid, I mean, Costner was also like a mid nineties star and it was interesting. He was coming off some really, really big hits. And later on, he would then be, you know, I think Dances with Wolves came after. Or no, actually, maybe that was before, too. Anyhow, Cost- before, yeah. Costner was a huge name. And so I feel like this movie is a really interesting insight into, like, what was going on in, uh, in, mid- in mid-90s uh, Hollywood. I'd say an interesting cautionary tale also in the sense that it's it's a movie that really swings for the fences as far as production as we've covered. Like this this idea of trying to really funnel a tremendous budget into like really elaborate and convincing production design and environments while also shooting at open sea. It's a really ambitious idea that's really strong. Like all those elements do really shine in this movie. But I think if you're going to, as a cautionary tale, if you're going to swing for the fences with that kind of production, make sure you've got a good script. And this movie, I think, really does not. Um, and I think it's also, I mean, uh, without, without my own personal bias tr- shining through too much, as like Mad Max being my favorite film franchise, like this movie owes George Miller money. Like, let's be honest, it really kind of like draws a lot from that world, uh, as was established before this movie, but does it in a way that is is less convincing in terms of character and less likable as far as a story. So I think that that, weighs it down a lot for me, especially as someone who can't separate its similarities. So it's interesting that you bring up Mad Max because the writers were not hiding the fact that they wanted to do a Mad Max ripoff set on, on water. That's how they put it. Oh yeah. So it's in, (laughs) in the production notes, at least uh, I've read not only on Wikipedia, but some other like production behind the scenes articles say that the writers like were very clear that really what they wanted to do was make kind of a children's action adventure version of Mad Max that would be set on the water. That makes and a lot of sense. There's there's one uh, reference I saw to it being based on a comic strip called Freak Wave that was described as Mad Max goes surfing, which <laughs> in in that context. I th- I find a lot of this action sequences quite fun in that like with that frame of reference. Kids move like kids action adventure where a lot of this action scenes feel like something you would watch like a show you might watch at Universal Studios or Disney World. Jet skis flying, underwater sequences, people on water skis, like more sort of choreographed sets and uh actiony shows fire everywhere 
And so, but I totally agree with you. Like it's not, it doesn't have the weight and interest and, and tight action that Mad Max does, but it is interesting that the writers were like, yeah, we want to do a Mad Max on water. <laughs> yeah. And I'll return to the difference between like tension and like a uh, character depth that this has versus uh, something like say Road Warrior, uh, which, uh, you know, may be coming up soon. Uh, but uh, as far as, yeah, as as far as it, that being their aim, I don't think anything about this movie is for kids. This is a very like gritty post-apocalypse or like, I mean, we meet our protagonist as he's converting his own piss into drinking water. So apparently none other than Joss Whedon was brought in later for um, yes. script rewrites and that a lot of his contributions definitely made it in no way a children's uh, action adventure script. <laughs> Well, it's also not a children's action adventure script if at one point there is sex bartering involved. So like Yeah, yeah. And we'll <laughs> we'll go oh God, we'll get back to that. Or maybe we'll get into it now. Connor, did you <laughs> did you want to comment on the uh the Mad Max on Water, uh Mad Max Goes Surfing topic? If there was a movie called Mad Max Goes Surfing. <laughs> or something that was just like a blatant parody of Mad Max. I, I could see that tagline working for me. <clears throat> no, definitely lots of similarities. And as I was watching this, I was like, what would a Fury Road, like sequel, re like rebooty kind of thing look like with Waterworld <laughs> is kind of what I was thinking of. We talked about Fury Road. It's a really phenomenal movie. I'm excited to watch more Mad Max movies, maybe in the future soon. Please do. They're uh, great. And so it just was... <sighs> I, one one thing I noticed, I was just looking up stuff about Waterworld, is that cinematographer Dean Selmer was also cinematographer for two Mad Max movies and Dancing with Wolves, Super Mario Bros. Like his his resume is just kind of wild and late like Apocalypto as well in 2006. And then he's done Paul Blart too. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry um, and a ton of Adam Sandler movies. So this dude's this is off a little off topic, but this dude's resume uh, it's just wild. Going from Dances with Wolves in 1990 to Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 in 2015 is, in my opinion, quite a career turn. But if he's happy, I guess, go for it. Paul Blart 2 is the good one. <laughs> hey, you gotta, you gotta pay the bills somehow. And I guess if you, uh, if Adam Sandler is paying your way, then why not? Uh, but that is an interesting thread to, uh, to follow. And something else I read in the connection between Fury Road and Mad Max Goes Surfing is that one of the com the writers of the comic strip later was a co-writer on Fury Road. So there's all of this web of interesting connections. So this movie definitely is tethered to the Mad Max world, even though if it it's just, you know, wet ripoff. But Connor, you ask, what would a Fury Road sequel or something look like? Well, I can definitely tell you, I would hope that the women characters in this movie are reassessed <laughs> because I'll just say, I'll just say it up front. If this movie didn't treat its women characters so horribly, I would actually say that I thoroughly enjoy this movie. Uh, for what it is. Um, but I don't think that I can make this a campy favorite because I'm just so appalled at how the Kevin Costner's character treats Helen, 
Enola gets a little bit better treatment and at least she has some fire to her, but poor Jean Triplehorn. This character is one of the worst characters, women characters I've seen written in a really long time. It is just hard to watch, just cringe worthy. I mean, he like, so to give folks context who have not seen this movie, we are introduced to the lone mariner who's on his, all he loves is his ship and the gadgets that he's been collecting on his ship. And then he finds he's got himself. That little, he's got the little uh, plant that he he's somehow nourishing, I guess, with the, wa- with the water that he's created from his own piss, which again, yeah, this is yeah. a kid's version of Mad Max. We're drinking piss. But, but yes, he's got this sort of ramshackle boat. I have no problem with the drinking piss. I've seen it on Bear Grylls. I've seen it on Survivor Man, all of that stuff. That is just a fact of life, you know? You got to do what you got to do. That's just such um, an introduction, though. Oh, boy. I actually thought that was a brilliant way of opening the movie. <laughs> open shot. Okay, you've got this open water shot. This this three-hull boat, boat looks beautiful. And then you close, you zoom in, and it's like Kevin Costner's lower half. We're not even introduced to the character. It's just somebody pissing into a plastic cup pouring it oh and then the camera moves up and it's just a shot of Costner's butt (laughs) and then he pours Uh it into this mechanism that he cranks and then it churns out water and he drinks you want to kind of vomit but it's also a really kind of cheeky uh (laughs) so to speak I like I think it's just it was a fun way to open this movie and to me felt tonally that it wasn't taking itself too seriously too bad later the movie does in some other ways, take itself too seriously. But I thought that was a very, very tongue-in-cheek way of, of opening the movie. Anyhow, the Mariner's lost it, or not lost at sea. He's a sea. He goes to this atoll where it's like kind of like a trading post where a lot of bunch of uh, other people live in this post-apocalyptic universe. And Deacon comes. Barter Town, if you Barter will. Town. Okay. <laughs> Barter Town ripoff. Um, and... One thing leads to another and they have to flee this burning atoll and Helen and Enola, who's this young girl who's been sort of taken under Helen's wing, must flee and they agree with the Mariner. They, oh, they help him escape this cage he's been put in because he's discriminated against for being part uh, fish and they try to kill him. And so anyhow, they work out a system where they're like, we'll free you if you let us aboard your boat. So they get on to the Mariner's boat. And then the whole time, the whole movie, Kevin Costner's character punches Helen, cuts her hair, just completely, just, it's it's in a, in a way that the script just create, I don't know. It's like hard to even describe. It's just so, uh, just unwatchable, this treatment of, of Helen. She's like the worst character, like, yeah. Anyhow. Oh, and then she sold. Yeah. It's like she, uh, somebody else take it from me. I can't even like describe it's yeah. She's like sold for sex, but then not though. Basically the plot wants you to sort of follow this misanthropic male character as he warms up to women and children. And it's just like such a sort of bomb inducing device. Therein also lies the deep misunderstanding of the material this is ripping off. Like, 
for example, like in Road Warrior, which again, you might hear this again soon, but uh, th- there's a whole arc, transformative arc for Max where he tries to help people out of self-interest because he's going to get something out of it. He fails and then is rescued by them. And then he tries to help them on moral grounds because there's a transcendent like human interaction uh, that is moral and like got a guiding principle that is like more building towards society and in, in full scale collapse, you know, uh, something that changes his character and his perspective versus this character of the Mariner who just starts off as kind of the shit who like hates both of these these characters, this this woman and this young child who are on his boat to the point that like, yeah, he gives the he gives them a forced saber haircut because of some offense they have on the ship. He, uh, he like practically beats the kid for using his crayons. At one point, he throws her overboard, and then when the smokers, I and- kind of laughed when he threw her. Overboard. There's some moments where I'm like, this movie goes places that's sort of funny. In another context, it could be funny, but this is not. Yeah, this is. Not. I was gonna say, in this context, is it is it is funny to see, but it is the lens is just pure brutality. Like he is such a misanthrope and such a shit to these people. And then suddenly he changes when the smokers and uh, Deacon show up and they steal back the child who we know him to really kind of hate and be annoyed by. And then he just suddenly has this change of heart. Like there's no weight to his transformation as a protagonist on top of making him a really, really deeply unlikable protagonist the whole time. Like I I like Deacon more than I do him as a character. Which is a problem because he's the villain. Oh, I loved it. Like Dennis Hopper in this is hilarious. But I don't mind the unlikable, gruff character if the other characters were actually written with substance. Like even Enola, I feel like she, she has a role. That she has a tattoo on her back, which we ultimately discover is the map to dry land. And she also, I really love Tina Majorino. She was in this, uh, like, she's a lot of like early movies I watched as a childhood. Um, There's a seal movie that she's in, kind of the seal version of Free Willy that I always love. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anyhow, I thought her child, like, kid acting was great. I thought she could hold her own. She really has presence. And I love Jean Triplehorn. If you see her in Big Love, she plays, oh God, I love her acting in, I think she's a wonderful actor. And I think her, she's played some really great characters, but Helen is just written with no substance. She's like a, she. she's written to be sort of this like sexy, sort of strong, but kind of annoying woman and it's just it's all over the place and so it's like yeah it's it's bad yeah they're just kind of like devices or like objects which like but that when you when you project that which isn't a good way to write women period but when you're if you're gonna do that that if you're gonna make your main like protagonist also like a misanthrope in his attitudes toward them up to a certain point that's unearned then it's even worse or or if you're gonna have the characters get like start kissing by the end, that was way unearned. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, yeah. He is, yeah, yeah. There's some weird shit going on here. And even like the the moments of bonding that he has with her, like when he shows her like the under, the undersea world that was once, uh, what is it, Denver, I believe. Yeah. Like he, he basically takes her down there because like they're having an argument about whether or not dry land exists. And like, it's not like some like, 
some like him giving up something of himself to like share something with her. It's like, I expect when he brings her up in the bathosphere to open it and be like, see, stupid, there is dry land under there. And like, he's just such a dick that like none of the that growth or like character interaction ever feels like it earns, as you're saying, the the ultimate resolve of them becoming like pseudo romantically involved or him even saving the kid. Yeah, it's it's bonkers. And if just... If those elements had not been there, I can say that I would thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy this movie. I think what, I mean, everything you guys said is just totally correct and totally accurate. And I think what a huge, like, fundamental issue with this movie is that the writing doesn't know what kind of movie it wants to be. Is it a wacky adventure where we go across the ocean seeing magnificent sights and all of our characters learn to bond? Is it a survival movie where these characters are like man versus God, man versus man? Like what is sort of the thematic meat this movie's trying to, you know, tackle or to think about, to chew on? And it's really just blah with no character development. I was actually thinking a lot of Logan. Um, and how that movie does a really excellent job of Wolverine. I don't want kids. I don't like kids. Get this kid out of here. And then as the movie goes on, he you know learns to love her, sacrifice himself for her and, and the other mutants. Spoilers. Um, and so I just think that movie, I was just thinking of Logan. Like That's a really great example of a character who doesn't like kids. Then by the end of the movie, goes to save the day. And so it's not hard to do. And I think this movie was just so focused on the production. And I don't know if this was Costner's ego or if it even goes further back to the like pre-production and the writing. Like it's hard, I think it's hard to know with a movie this big <clears throat> where exactly the crack, the biggest cracks are, or maybe just all of them culminating into just a really spectacular belly flop. Let's chat quickly uh, about Dennis Hopper as Deacon. What do we think of him as a villain and how does he either contribute to or go against the established tone of the movie. That's exactly it. Yeah. I love Hopper's villain. He is uh, like menacing yet comical. And that has no place in this movie. <laughs> like it really stands, especially with such an unlikable protagonist for the, the villain to be a source of humor. Like when he's like, we have the Batman 89 ripoff scene of like mirror mirror. And he looks and he's got the eye and it's like, wait, don't they get a load of me? Which by the way, Dennis Hopper as a, uh, as the 89 Joker, that would have been pretty great. <laughs> Not that I don't love Nicholson's, but yeah, Hopper just brings this like very like comic energy to it. That diffuses the villainy. If like, if the source of antagonism in this post-apocalyptic world isn't as frightening or like, short-tempered as our protagonist then it falls apart <laughs> that that's kind of my big problem is how it treats the dynamics and necessary roles and structures of protagonist and antagonist the way the two of them are framed against each other and that I, makes me think of fury road with max and furiosa against the chieftain who's like they're such interesting like relationship and character dynamics and personalities uh, with those, you know, a protect, our protagonistic forces and our antagonistic forces, where I feel like I kind of want to learn about what's going on in the ship. This, like, cruiser that they're on, the guy with the goggles who's, like, the only person manning the fuel tank. Oh, God, like, that a guy's whole... great. Well, it kind of felt like there's... is brilliant. I'm so okay, sorry. Okay, yeah, we got to talk about this guy real quick, also. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. 
Uh, so this is just a guy. It, it, it's established that Deacon Dennis Hopper as the villain has this is it has the Exxon Valdez ship uh, after 500 years, which still has crude oil in it. Uh, which, by the way, jet skis don't run on. Uh, <laughs> but he's he's in um, in the ship, and he every once in a while opens this hatch down into this dark layer that is totally unlit and is just occupied by this one old man in a boat rowing through the oil in darkness with no scope or sense of like day or night who just like gets information from above and then finally in the end when there's the big siege on the ship this is jumping ahead a lot when costner throws down the flare into the crude oil to destroy the ship and blow everything up just the flare coming down landing in the oil and seeing that guy again just saying oh thank god before and embracing his own fiery explosion it's so fucking great that's the best part of the movie truly i'm so glad that you described that because it's truly a highlight. Oh man. It's just like watching your, your future unfold and just be like, come take me. I'm ready. And as Connor has just said in our group chat here. Yeah. It's, it reminded me quite a bit it, going back to last week of twilight, uh, breaking dawn part two with the final brawl and the one a vampire who's just tired of being a vampire, embracing his, uh, violent death saying, finally, it's like I've watched two characters hilariously accept their own violent deaths in like the last week. And it's been a big fan of that. It's great. I think his crew feels like they have like, they should be breaking out with a song. Like if they just started singing, like if this was like a musical crew, like the last crude oil <clears throat> vessel on earth going around and they sing merry songs, but they're also terrible pirates who pillage. And I don't know. It's like, it just feels like there's very jaunty quality to this crew of misfits. All the whole energy of the smokers. So the smokers are sort of that crew. Deacon is the leader of them. Yes, as Dave pointed out, they are currently living on the Exxon Valdez, which was responsible for the big oil spill in like, I don't know, the 80s. Pretty uh, sure it lost all of its oil, but okay. Yeah, pretty sure all <laughs> that oil is off the coast of Alaska. Um, and he also worships old St. Joe, who's reference. I didn't pick up on this reference, but Captain Joseph Hazelwood, who was the captain of the Exxon Valdez. There's like a portrait of him up on the wall. So yeah, it's, just like these- his, it's like his Bronco Henry. <laughs> yeah. Right. So all of these little like cheeky references to a huge natural disaster that happened. And I think that all of the smokers presence and Deacon's character bring the move, give the movie the levity that it really needs to carry you through. And I think Connor, you mentioned this at the beginning. If this could have been like maybe a Mad Max parody that didn't really take itself so seriously, like that was like like clearly parodying all of the classic elements of the Mad Max franchise, it could have been kind of a fun a fun take because Dennis Hopper's energy is so different than Kevin Costner's. And Dave, you've pointed out that you really need the villain to feel like the antagonist. And in this case, he's just kind of this funny kind of joking. He, I think he does bring some menace too. That's scary. I always bit, thought yeah, yeah. he was, he was scary. Um, he's Dennis Hopper. He's going to bring it a little bit, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he just brings this, this levity that's, that's much needed. And I think he, he's, he's got some funny one-liners if maybe it was a Hopper ad-libbing it and not the screenwriters writing it, who knows? But um, I really loved everything about the smokers. As I mentioned before, 
there are these sequences where jet ski, his like jet ski battalion or whatever or would will be waiting underground or under the water. They'll be strapped together under the water, waiting to spring for like a military style assault. And then there'll be this uh, flare that'll flash in the underwater and the jet skis are released and they go up these ramps, shooting into the water, charging at the atoll or whatever they're trying to, to uh, attack. And it's just this, I think, these funny sequences of ridiculous, ridiculous use of jet skis, which I'm all for, to be totally honest. Um Honestly, yeah, the action in this movie is awesome. Like, if it if it weren't separated by such broad swaths of like character development that I felt didn't pay off, then it, the action spectacle stuff and the production that goes into like the jet ski it's assaults and like their whole like barge like attack systems and like it really raises the stakes too. Like, it 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 is kind of like simultaneously like fun and jaunty, both in terms of like you know jet skis are flying everywhere. That's pretty fun. But there's also these ships that are just like firing shells after shells into like other ships and stuff so like the action is pretty great and and is when i enjoy it the most when it reminds me of the action of the mad max franchise and we're talking all built sets here i i had mentioned that the sets themselves were really bringing the budget way way over i think one of the i think the atoll cost like 22 million dollars or something crazy like only that set um, but that that floating atoll set was a quarter mile around, weighed over two million pounds, and required like a shit ton of steel to bring that in. Now, granted, if the message is environmental, you know, if there's an environmental message in this movie, the amount of steel, apparently they took all the steel from Hawaii and had to import it from uh, from California. It's not really helping its environmental cause. But all that is to say, when you're watching this movie, you are really well aware of how tactile all of the sets are. No CGI, everything is water, everything is built. And you have this sort of Pirates of the Caribbean-esque, like sort of these sequences where uh, Costner is swinging from rope to rope, from the mast to the part of the ship onto the atoll, all of this use of rope and, and line and all stuff that makes it really, really fun to watch that wouldn't be made today. Back to that sort of argument that this is uh, kind of a a timepiece. I don't think that this movie would be able to achieve all of its um, practical effects with a big budget movie today. I think a big budget remake of this would, would really overly rely on CGI. A lot of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies do. And I just don't think it would be the same. I suppose my mind does straight, you know, again, invariably to Mad Max, because then you get Fury Road, which is... That's true. That's it true. does make use of CG, to be fair, uh, and and abundantly, but not in terms of the its utilization of practical effects. And I think that, yeah, there there's there's a lot of strength to this movie, again, in, in going the extra mile toward building these lavish tactile sets that are not CGI, that are actually rendered and are actually physical things that characters can traverse and interact with. The stunt spectacles being, you know, stunt men rather than CG uh, compositing is all really convincing and all really great. So yeah, once again, I mean, the action in this movie and the set design in particular is is really great. So uh, to the movie's credit, if if one were going to go back 
and think about how a movie like this uh, stands out. I think it's it's commitment to a time when, you know, CG was starting to be messed with a little bit. It, it's commitment to really investing in it being all practical. It's really admirable. That being said, uh, obviously that did result in some problems that uh, you probably couldn't make this today because of how unsafe it was. As Dottie had mentioned earlier on into this episode, you know, there were several actors that were nearly lost at sea or drowned. So I don't think you could get away with making a spectacle like this today, not only because uh, you have other options uh, that can enhance practical effects or uh, also because it wasn't very safe to make. I do think there's that happy medium where you can have a, a tactile set and give your performers enough time and training and safety measures to ensure that they can do the stunts and do them safely. Mm. And yeah, there should always be plenty of, of safety measures that ensure no actors have to get washed out, right? Washed out, it's, it's so many crazy things. Like apparently the stunt double that was doing the underwater sequence for for Kevin Costner got like an embolism and had to leave set because, yeah, because of, you know, pressure differences in that diving scene. Uh, Costner himself was like tied to a mast and then almost floated out to sea. Some really crazy stuff that would never fly today. As you've said, yeah. I'm I'm definitely team practical effects all the way, just about every time. But no one has ever been killed by a CGI effect. <laughs> yet, Only... not yet, not yet. It's it's coming. That time is coming. In the multiverse, killed by CGI. Um, well, I feel like we already covered a lot of ground. Are there any particular scenes or characters that you wanted to highlight or talk about? Or I wanted to just briefly touch on like the world building of yeah. Waterworld. A lot of it's just kind of like nonsense you have to buy into, but there are some interesting things that they're playing with. Uh, mainly, I think like the tree cult that's on this atoll and how they like sacrifice I guess criminals or traitors into like the mud pit to feed the roots, like seem to be kind of my interpretation of it, like sacrificing to this tree God. I think like definitely in a water world, like a failed tomato plant, as your mother mentioned, uh, is very important. Like all these little glimpses of life, of dirt, this, uh, what is it called? Proto Portuguese Greek or something. He calls it like the sailor, the mariner language. I hate um, when movies do this where they'll introduce some element of like, oh, we don't necessarily have to be speaking English because there are other languages at this in this universe, but they always do, let's just speak English, you know? And then it's just <laughs> like a lazy writer's way of being like, we can't actually flesh out how language would have evolved in this future because we just need audience, like English speaking audiences to understand this. I'm sorry to interrupt Connor, but that <laughs> really bothered me. No, and it bothered me too because there's like glimpses of these like kind of interesting ideas of like what would a world covered in water look like? Ignoring the logistics of you never being able to find another single living person on the open ocean, especially <laughs> a planet-sized ocean, uh, it'd be literally impossible to find anybody or anything and you'd be dead. So aside, ignoring the actual premise of the movie, there's like a few sparks of interesting ideas. Uh, but the fact that none of those are really ever followed through, I think just hurts the movie even more. It's like you have some interesting ideas, some interesting characters, but you only got like 10% of the way. And that's being a little generous, I think. 
I think you might get those details in Ulysses Uncut, Connor. So I think mm-hmm. you have your work cut out for you. I'd say at the at the very onset of the film, when we get the uh, Universal Globe logo, and then the 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 ocean starts swallowing the land on the familiar Universal Globe, uh, which establishes that the Universal Globe exists in the canon of Waterworld. <laughs> so every other movie you've seen it in is like, hey. That's the one from Waterworld. Uh, also, there's not enough uh, water on the uh, the ice caps to flood the entire world. Uh, so that's not... While it's going to be a problem, it won't be this problem quite on this scale. But yeah, uh, crazy stuff. Just a crazy movie. Uh, the, again, I, I just keep returning to the production design because I do really admire it. The design of the Atoll... Uh, the design of, as Connor has alluded to, this recycling pit that they have, which is just sort of like this kind of like ugh, disgusting mud goo that things it are lower. It looks like into. Nickelodeon slime. It's pretty goo. close, yeah. Uh, but uh, appreciating, yeah, that that's part of it. Uh, uh, there is this interesting like sky captain that like this guy that just sort of builds this this um, sort of like hot air balloon that uh, lifts off the atoll at a crucial moment. Uh, again, pretty close to the Sky Captain and Road Warrior, but uh, some pretty neat stuff. I mean, like, I think beyond, beyond the way that these characters explore this world and the way that the, the arc of the story develops, the world that it's in and the world building is pretty strong. And th- it's pretty well captured by the cinematographer, by uh, this pretty incredible production design that obviously really invested a ton of their budget into making something convincingly tactile and uh, and something that explains itself. Like most of the things are highly functional in this world. Like it really does take the time to explore like what the purpose of everything within these ships uh, are. And like, you know, like the netting on his, uh, his ship is like necessary, not only for him to like bring things up to and rest them on, but like if he's on the mast and he falls, he's not going to fall into the ocean. He's going to fall onto that part of the raft. And like, yeah, just a lot of details. Although not a lot of consideration for the practical realities of this world in a lot of ways. If if you're jumping in and out of ocean water, even in a world where you have a ship, uh, but no land to go off to, onto or no fresh water to dry off on, you're going to have a big problem with dehydration. But eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I like I like what you said, Dave, in that there was a lot of thought into the production design. And I think there's a really wonderful steampunk vibe to it because you see a lot of mechanics behind the machines, the ships. uh, And so a lot of care and thought was taken into thinking about how, at least to an extent, these humans would build a world, build an island or an atoll out of just stuff. There's a lot of visions of just recycled stuff. Costner dredging up ski boots from the bottom of the ocean, which is Denver. And then he tries them on and you see how different materials are repurposed. And I I really like that vibe of not only the mechanical nature of things, but sort of this repurposed world. Can we talk quickly about that fish monster and how, (laughs) what that was? Do you know what I'm talking about? When they're really hungry and they need to eat. And suddenly there is not a shark, not a whale. What do you guys think that was? I guess it almost like presumes that like, it's got like that like goldfish mentality, right? Where like the bigger a tank you get for a goldfish, the bigger they'll get. So like, as the world became an ocean, sharks got bigger or different. (laughs) I don't know. 
at the end, when they finally reach dry land and it's this beautiful utopia that looks something out of Jurassic Park, you also see wild horses on the land, which don't evolve. So, like, why <laughs> did this fish thing? Who knows? You're thinking too much about it. They did not. I don't think that they definitely did not put that much thought. I mean, it's only 500 years. How could Kevin Costner become a mutant? Like, horses would still be the same in 500 years. Yeah, and so would sharks, for that matter, actually. <laughs> so many questions. How do, how do we just feel about the very end? I guess it's a good place to like kind of start wrapping up where they do find dry land. And I guess that was Enola's home. Is that, did I like miss something? That was her home, right? And that's where she was from. Yes, that was her parent. Those were her parents. And her parents tattooed her to let other people and sent her out to sea so other people can find their small island to then live with them. Was that the whole mission? Like, this quest is so confusing and contrived. It's a confusing at the end too, like where they, they roll up and like, she's still a child. So like, how long ago did they send her out to see that they are now like rendered skeletons who like gave up on like being alive on what is either a very fruitful paradise where they could have survived or they've arrived at a map that's led them to an uninhabitable island and that's why they're dead. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's gotta be one or the other. <laughs> Skeletons look as if they have been decomposing for 200 years. <laughs> and Enola is seven, eight at most. <laughs> and so like, did yes, they tattoo a baby? And if they did, like, what was the point? Like, is it to like bring people back to an island where they just chose to die because they didn't have resources anyway? Or is it inviting them back to an island where they had plenty to live off of, but still died somehow? <laughs> I was pretty shocked that they found dry land. Like, I, I, I did not think the movie was going to give us that, but it did. And it just further confuses the plot. Like, I feel like you could have had a movie where they want this young girl for, I mean, this gets dark, but like reproduction, maybe that's an issue. Fertility, I don't know. Like, there's, like, but the fact that it's a map tattooed on her back is so effing stupid. Like, is for me, just beyond stupid. I mean, I feel like in a movie like this, you knew they were going to reach dry land. You knew that Enola was yeah. the key to this secret. It, it, it's all contrived. And apparently in Ulysses Uncut, it reveals that that island is the tip of Mount Everest. So there's no right. other, which, which actually does make sense because at being the highest point on Earth, there'd be no other dry land that could possibly exist. So... You know, right, but it's also the top of a mountain that wouldn't be able to sustain growth or vegetation, really, even with the change of climate. I don't think. Of course, right? If the, if the whole water table rises, but it's then, pretty much just rock, right? Well, then, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You know. I haven't lived through water hey, world. Geologist, check in in five hundred years. Listening to this podcast, call in or. I mean, that would be so great if we had like a live line. Email us, tell us really what Waterworld would look like if the ice caps melted. Or I should say when the ice caps melt, which, you know, we're all headed there. Well, no, it's it's happening fast. I feel like this was a good movie to talk around Earth Day. You know, we just we just had our Earth Day 2022 and... It's still going great. <laughs> thing, yeah, the, the ice caps are still melting, so... 
so topical at least. That's Waterworld, guys. I don't know what more there is to say about it that other than I find it other than the reprehensible characterization of both Mariner and Helen. I find this movie quite a curio and to me a really fun ride. Great, as we've said before, great use of jet skis, great use of, I should just say, water action choreography and blocking. Um, Another unsung Oscars category. Yes, come on. Where's that Oscars category? I shall also say, I did not catch this on the first watching of Waterworld this year, but did, upon my second rewatch, a favorite of mine, a young Jack Black, has a cameo in Waterworld as a smoker. I was like, is that Jack Black? That can't be Jack Black. And then I looked it up and it was Jack Black. He just is in everything. Never Ending Story, Three, <laughs> Waterworld. Mm. Mars Attacks. Like, Mar- oh, oh, okay, nice. Everyone's in that, to be fair. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, so that kind of rounds out movies we dragged our parents to see. And... Thank you, John, for dragging us to see that movie because maybe if it wasn't part of my, you know, childhood conscience or consciousness, I would not have maybe been intrigued to rewatch this. And now I have. Maybe the sequel is coming. There was talks of a sci-fi Waterworld show, but we'll never know. Um, all right. That was Waterworld, folks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Connor. As always, we're so excited to be part of the Movie John podcast. Check out those awesome other podcasts and uh, check us on the socials. You know the socials, guys. You know them. (laughs) Write us an email. We will definitely read it out loud and answer all of uh, your quandaries. Have a great whatever. We'll catch you next week for a new theme. What, 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 water flop. This has been a Movie John podcast.